Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Today we join novelist Eli Gottlieb as he interviews Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Mark Strand, recorded at the Jones Theater in Denver, Colorado. to the uh, Inside the Writer's Studio with Mark Strand and Eli Gottlieb. My name is Mike Henry, and I'm the Executive Director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. And I've been with Lighthouse for 11 years uh, since it started. I'm one of the co-founders. And for those of you who don't know us, Lighthouse is an independent, nonprofit creative writing center. We feel lucky to have on our faculty a group of writers rivaling that of any MFA program in the country. Many of them are here now. If you're here, if you're a faculty member, raise your hand. Good people, good people. We also have a phenomenal and dedicated board of directors who have worked tirelessly over the years to create a sustainable model out of this vague and financially irresponsible idea (laughs) that Andrew and I had when we were just out of graduate school. Uh, Needless to say, Lighthouse uh, has grown up. Unless we fear that the writing workshop is a sad scenario of the blind leading the blind, I want to sketch out a picture of who our members are, the people who come and spend time at the Farrell House and at places like the DCPA and Tattered Cover. Some people arrive at our doors ready to write a novel. Perhaps they've just graduated college or they haven't written since college or they've just retired and they want to try something new. No matter who they are or where they're from, they are friends and fellows in a shared desire to make something beautiful, to make art out of words. And I shouldn't say uh, they, it's really we, because I know almost everybody in the audience. So anyways, but for that wonderful gift, I, I need to thank our supporters. So thank you to Colorado Humanities, Tattered Cover, the SCFD, and also to the DCPA for hosting us today. Now, before Mark Strand comes out and read, I, I need to introduce you, uh, well, before, and before I introduce you to Eli Gottlieb, I'd like to take a moment and read to you a passage from Mark Strand's intro to the best American poetry of 1991. I'd read Mark Strand's poetry as an undergraduate. I, really, I was a really confused undergraduate. Um, I loved his work, and I was too much of a slacker to really go and study him on my own once I graduated. But I knew that I wanted to write. I just didn't know how or why. So in the midst of that time wandering in 1991, I bought a copy of The Best American Poetry thinking, well, if I want to write poetry, I have to figure out what what this poetry thing is. So I read the intro, and it made me laugh and cry all, all in a few pages. But it also gave me the courage somehow, the courage to tell, tell myself that while others will do what they will, praise, judge, worry, criticize, it was okay for me to try and forge a life that accepts and nurtures one's soul. And along those lines, I'd like to just to read the opening to the intro. It is 1957. I am home on vacation from art school, sitting across from my mother in the living room. We are talking about my future. My mother feels I have picked a difficult profession. I will have to struggle in obscurity, and it may be years and years before I am recognized. Even then, there is no guarantee that I will be able to make a living and support a family. She thinks it would be wiser for me to become a lawyer or doctor. 
It is then that I tell her that although I have just begun art school, I am actually more interested in poetry. (laughs) But then you'll never be able to earn a living, she says. My mother is concerned that I shall suffer needlessly. I tell her that the pleasures to be gotten from poetry far exceed those that come with wealth or stability. I offer to read her some of my favorite poems by Wallace Stevens. I begin with the idea of order at Key West. In a few minutes, my mother's eyes are closed and her head leans to one side. She is asleep in her chair. I didn't know poets could be funny, so that was really a great, wonderful thing for me. (laughs) So now it's time for me to um, introduce you to Mark Strand's exceptionally capable interviewer for today's event. For those of you who don't know him, Eli Gottlieb is a writer of the highest caliber. Anyone who's read his award-winning novel, first novel, The Boy Who Went Away, knows that he has the ability to make you laugh out loud, perhaps inappropriately, at his characters and their situations. You might even snort accidentally, which Andrea did do a couple of times when she read his book, I swear. Sorry, I had to tell him. But anyone who read his first novel, who wasn't blubbering by the end, has a much stronger constitution than I. In other words, he's got heart as well. His new novel, Now You See Him, has received much well-deserved buzz. Eli is an exacting writer. His sentences and turns of phrase are so finely sculpted, there is a pleasing tension in every sentence he writes. And this tension certainly seeps into the life of the main character of Now You See Him, a guy named Nick, who's lost and wandering without fully realizing the depths into which he has fallen. Nick believes that the story he's telling is not about him, but about his best friend, a writer who's fallen off the cliff of early fame. And yet, as with all lifelong friends, the ties, which are invisible and yet strong as steel, lead Nick to his own doom. Hell is not a place. It is with Nick in his skin, in his mind and heart. And that journey is truly a remarkable one. And I feel very lucky to to count Eli as a friend of mine. So without any further blathering on my part, please uh, welcome Eli Gottlieb. First of all, thank you, Michael, for that wonderful introduction. That's better than any review I've gotten. Uh, So I really appreciate it. Uh, We're in for a treat today, and I'm uh, thrilled to be sitting uh, across the stage Mark. Mark Strand is that rarest of things, a great poet who's continued to get better over time. Everybody with a set of eyes and ears remembers his early books of poems, the stab of their ironies, their uncanny, off-kilter relationship to the authorial self. They performed a kind of emotional chiropractory on readers, and were like the mysterious galleries in the paintings of Giorgio di Chirico, in that they obeyed no known laws of physics and yet felt entirely actual and real. Their gestural terseness hid a world of implication. And differently from the so-called confessional poets who were in vogue when Mark first began publishing, they seemed to take a more jaunty European or continental approach to worldly anxiety. If Wallace Stevens had been baked in the hard American daylight of Robert Frost, they might have produced the wry, sly confection that is Mark Strand. 
Diligently, over 50 years, he's continued to write while no easy feat, expanding steadily as a poet. Talent is one thing. Ongoing creative growth through a life of art is another thing entirely and far rarer. I've seen his work process with its scribbled notebook pages, its endless revisions. The famously casual voice rests on an ocean of craft. The dreamlike clarity of the diction as it meditates on the self in time, on light, landscapes, women, and the comedy of desire is the product not only of a mind that thinks and lives in poetry, but of thousands of hours of grueling, solitary, plain, hard work. It's no accident that of all the cities of the world, Mark would be most comfortable in that one which perfectly represents both the light of the mind and the mortality of the body, Rome. Mark has been coming to Rome for many years and is deeply at home in its cafes and streets. He's been beautifully translated into Italian and is in fact a superstar poet in Italy where they're running out of medals to hang around his neck. I've had the good fortune to spend time with him there and in the speeded up rhythms of acquaintance that exile confers, we've become friends. I remember that when the great Italian poet and filmmaker Pasolini was murdered, his friend, the novelist Alberto Moravia, attended his funeral and spoke to the crowd. A major poet has gone, he said. There are only a few real poets alive at one time in the world, perhaps only a handful in a century. They are each of them precious gifts to their home country. He was right, and we're lucky to have one with us today, Mark Strand. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Eli. Uh, That was beautiful. I've written down poems I'm going to read, but I may deviate. But I'd like to read a poem for Eli first, a poem called Fiction. I think of the innocent lives of people in novels who know they'll die, but not that the novel will end. How different they are from us. Here the moon stares dumbly down through scattered clouds onto the sleeping town and the wind rounds up the fallen leaves and somebody, namely me, deep in his chair, riffles the pages left, knowing there's not much time for the man and woman in the rented room, for the red light over the door, for the iris tossing its shadow against the wall, Not much time for the soldiers under the trees that line the river, for the wounded being hauled away to the cities of the interior where they will stay. The war that raged for years will come to a close, and so will everything else, except for a presence hard to define, a trace like the scent of grass after a night of rain or the remains of a voice that lets us know without spelling it out, not to despair. If the end has come, it too will pass. Thank you. But if you don't clap after the next poem, I'll be hurt. 
You're really under no obligation. (laughs) Old man leaves party. It was clear when I left the party that though I was over 80, I still had a beautiful body. The moon shone down as it will on moments of deep introspection. The wind held its breath. And look, somebody left a mirror leaning against a tree. Making sure that I was alone, I took off my shirt. The flowers of bear grass nodded their moon-washed heads. I took off my pants and the magpies circled the redwoods. Down in the valley, the creaking river was flowing once more. How strange that I should stand in the wilds alone with my body. I know what you're thinking. I was like you once, but now, with so much before me, so many emerald trees and weed-whitened fields, mountains and lakes, how could I not be only myself, this dream of flesh, from moment to moment? One of my favorite authors is Kafka. I love his diaries and I love the Blue Octavo notebooks and, of course, his fiction. And I found a phrase, um, I can't remember where it was, it was in one of the diaries, um, and it was simply, or yeah, it was simply, I had been a polar explorer. Dot, dot, dot. And so I thought I'd finish it. This is called I Had Been a Polar Explorer. I had been a polar explorer in my youth and spent countless days and nights freezing in one blank place and then another. Eventually I quit my travels and stayed at home and there grew within me a sudden excess of desire as if a brilliant stream of light of the sort one sees within a diamond were passing through me. I filled page after page of visions of what I had witnessed, groaning seas of pack ice, giant glaciers, and the wind swept white of icebergs. Then, with nothing more to say, I stopped and turned my sights on what was near. Almost at once, a man wearing a dark coat and broad-brimmed hat appeared under the trees in front of my house. The way he stared straight ahead and stood not shifting his weight, letting his arms hang down at his side, made me think that I knew him. But when I raised my hand to say hello, he took a step back, turned away, and started to fade as longing fades until nothing is left of it. Man and Camel. On the eve of my 40th birthday, I sat on the porch having a smoke when out of the blue, 
a man and a camel happened by. Neither uttered a sound at first, but as they drifted up the street and out of town, the two of them began to sing. Yet what they sang is still a mystery to me. The words were indistinct and the tune too ornamental to recall. Into the desert they went, and as they went their voices rose as one above the sifting sound of wind-blown sand. The wonder of their singing, its elusive blend of man and camel, seemed an ideal image for all uncommon couples. Was this the night that I had waited for so long? I wanted to believe it was. But just as they were vanishing, the man in camel ceased to sing and galloped back to town. They stood before my porch, staring up at me with beady eyes and said, You ruined it. You ruined it forever. This is a short poem in two rather short sections called Elevator. One, the elevator went to the basement. The doors opened. A man stepped in and asked if I was going up. I'm going down, I said. I won't be going up. Two. The elevator went to the basement. The doors opened. A man stepped in and asked if I was going up. I'm going down, I said. I won't be going up. Fooled you. <clears throat> I'm going to read a um, an early poem, not entirely mine. It's a poem, well, it's almost a translation. It's a poem after the great Brazilian poet Carlos Drummond de Andrade. The poem is called The Dirty Hand. My hand is dirty. I must cut it off. To wash it is pointless. The water is putrid. The soap is bad. It won't lather. The hand is dirty. It's been dirty for years. I used to keep it out of sight, in my pants pocket. No one suspected a thing. People came up to me wanting to shake hands. I would refuse, and the hidden hand like a dark slug, would leave its imprint on my thigh. And then I realized it was the same, if I used it or not. Disgust was the, sh was the same. How many nights in the depths of the house I washed that hand, scrubbed it, polished it, dreamed it would turn to diamond or crystal, or even at last 
into a plain white hand, the clean hand of a man that you could shake or kiss or hold in one of those moments when two people confess without saying a word, only to have the incurable hand, lethargic and crab-like, open its dirty fingers. And the dirt was vile. It was not mud or soot or the caked filth of an old scab or the sweat of a laborer's shirt. It was a sad dirt made of sickness and human anguish. It was not black. Black is pure. It was dull, a dull grayish dirt. It is impossible to live with this gross hand that lies on the table. Quick, cut it off, chop it to pieces and throw it into the ocean. With time, with hope and its intricate workings, another hand will come, pure, transparent as glass, and fasten itself to my arm. And then, this is a, um, this is a poem after Carlos Drummond, the same poet, Change this one a bit too. It's called My Son. My son, my only son, the one I never had would be a man today. He moves in the wind, fleshless, nameless. Sometimes he comes and leans his head, lighter than air, against my shoulder. And I ask him, Son, where do you stay? Where do you hide? And he answers me with a cold breath. You never noticed, though I called and called and keep on calling from a place beyond, beyond love, where nothing, everything, wants to be born. Then, I'll read a poem about my mother. It's called My Mother on an Evening in Late Summer. Rather older, also poem I wrote quite some time ago. We used to um, spend the summer in Nova Scotia, and my aunt had a house there, but it had no indoor plumbing, and and there was um, a wood stove, and. Um, had to pump the water. Uh, there was a pump in the kitchen. You would pump it. And uh, my mother and my aunt worked very hard because my sister was there, my cousins, my uncle, sometimes my father. 
I always felt a little guilty even then, even though I was a kid. My mother on an evening in late summer, one, when the moon appears and a few wind-stricken barns stand out in the low-domed hills and shine with a light that is veiled and dust-filled and that floats upon the fields, my mother with her hair in a bun her face in shadow and the smoke from her cigarette coiling close to the faint yellow sheen of her dress stands near the house and watches the seepage of late light down through the sedges, the last gray islands of cloud taken from view and the wind ruffling the moon's ash-colored coat on the black bay. Two, soon the house, with its shades drawn closed, will send small carpets of lamp glow into the haze, and the bay will begin its loud heaving, and the pines, frayed finials climbing the hill, will seem to graze the dim cinders of heaven, and my mother will stare into the star lanes, the endless tunnels of nothing. And as she gazes under the hour's spell, she will think how we yield each night to the soundless storms of decay that tear at the folding flesh. And she will not know why she is here or what she is prisoner of, if not the conditions of love that brought her to this. Three. My mother will go indoors and the fields, the bare stones will drift in peace. Small creatures, the mouse and the swift will sleep at opposite ends of the house. Only the cricket will be up repeating its one shrill note to the rotten boards of the porch, to the rusted screens, to the air, to the rimless dark to the sea that keeps to itself. Why should my mother awake? The earth is not yet a garden about to be turned. The stars are not yet bells that ring at night for the lost. It is much too late. And then read a poem called What It Was. skipping around here. This is a poem in two sections. One, what it was. It was impossible to imagine, impossible not to imagine, the blueness of it, the shadow it cast, falling downward, filling the dark with the chill of itself, the cold of it falling out of itself, out of whatever idea of itself it described as it fell, a something, a smallness, a dot, a speck, a speck within a speck, an endless depth of smallness, a song, but less than a song, something drowning 
into itself, something going, a flood of sound, but less than a sound, the last of it, the blank of it, the tender small blank of it, filling its echo and falling and rising unnoticed and falling again and always thus and always because and only because once having been it was too. It was the beginning of a chair. It was the gray couch. It was the walls, the garden, the gravel road. It was the way the ruined moonlight fell across her hair. It was that, and it was more. It was the wind that tore at the trees. It was the fuss and clutter of clouds, the shore littered with stars. It was the hour which seemed to say that if you knew what time it really was, you would not ask for anything again. It was that. It was certainly that. It was also what never happened, a moment so full that when it went as it had to, no grief was large enough to contain it. It was the room that appeared unchanged after so many years. It was that. It was the hat she'd forgotten to take, the pen she left on the table. It was the sun on my hand. It was the sun's heat. It was the way I sat, the way I waited for hours. For days, it was that, just that. I'll read an amusing poem. I hope it's amusing. It's from. It's one of the sections from Dark Harbor. It happened years ago, and in somebody else's dining room. Madame X begged to be relieved of a sexual pain that had my name written all over it. Those were the days when so many things of a sexual nature seemed to happen, and my name, I believed, was written on all of them. <laughs> Madame X took my hand under the table, placed it on her thigh, then moved it up. You would never know what a woman with such blue eyes and blonde hair was not wearing. <laughs> Did I suffer knowing that I was wanted for the wrong reasons? Of course, and it has taken me years to recover. <laughs> We don't give parties like that anymore. These days we sit around and sigh. We like the sound of it. And it seems to combine weariness and judgment, even to suggest no eggs for the moment, no sausages either. Just come, take me away, and put me to bed. couple short poems and then we'll talk this is a weird poem and it's got an impossible title 
it's called Velocity Meadows. And I, it's a poem I wrote while I was also looking at a book of Van Gogh paintings. And there's one painting with these blackbirds over a field and the grass seems to be flattened in waves by the wind. And I, I jotted down Velocity Meadows because the, the bending grass seemed to suggest the speed of the wind. And although the poem isn't a description of any particular painting of Van Gogh's, it's, it may suggest, in part, his paintings. Although... To tell the truth, that wasn't the purpose of this poem. So everything I've said, you just put out of mind. <laughs> Velocity Meadows. I can say now that nothing was possible but leaving the house and standing in front of it, staring as long as I could into the valley. I knew that a train trailing a scarf of smoke would arrive that soon it would rain. A freeze of clouds lowered a shadow over the town, and a driving wind flattened the meadows that swept beyond the olive trees and banks of hollyhock and rose. The air smelled sweet, and a girl was waving a stick at some crows. So far away they seemed like flies. Her mother wearing a cape and shawl shielded her eyes. I wondered from what, since there was no sun. Then someone appeared and said, look at those clouds forming a wall, those crows falling out of the sky, those fields, pale green, green, yellow, rolling away, and that girl and her mother waving goodbye. In a moment, the sky was stained with a reddish haze, and the person beside me was running away. It was dusk. The lights of the town were coming on. And I saw dimly at first, close to the graveyard, bound by rows of cypress bending down, the girl and her mother next to each other, smoking, grinding their heels into the ground. And then I'd like to close... Uh, reading two poems that are based on paintings, actual paintings, by Giorgio de Chirico, uh, who Eli mentioned, if I can find them. Yeah. I was asked um, <clears throat> two separate occasions, but occasions close together um, uh, by museums. One, the University of Iowa Museum and the other, the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, to pick a painting from the from their collections and to write whatever I wanted to. So I picked a Dakirico from one and a Dakirico from the other because I had an affinity for Dakirico. And, um, well, that's enough of that. I don't know whether you know de Chirico's paintings. You probably do. Uh, 
the one in Chicago is called The Philosopher's Conquest. And um, I'll read that poem first, and then I'll read, I'll tell you about the other later. The Philosopher's Conquest. This melancholy moment will remain. So too the oracle beyond the gate, and always the tower, the boat, the distant train. Somewhere to the south the duke is slain, a war is won. Here it is too late, this melancholy moment will remain. Here an autumn evening without rain, two artichokes abandoned on a crate, and always the tower, the boat, the distant train. Is this another scene of childhood pain? Why do the clock hands say 128? This melancholy moment will remain. The green and yellow light of love's domain falls upon the joylessness of fate and always the tower, the boat, the distant train. The things our vision wills us to contain, the life of objects, their unbearable weight. This melancholy moment will remain and always the tower, the boat, the distant train. The other, The Disquieting Muses, is one of 19 uh, that de Chirico painted, all exactly the same. But there was a big market for this painting, and he, he wasn't about to disappoint potential buyers. So he scrupulously copied from the first 18 others. Um, the Disquieting Muses... Boredom sets in first and then despair. One tries to brush it off. It only grows. Something about the silence of the square. Something is wrong. Something about the air. It's color. About the light. The way it glows. Boredom sets in first and then despair. The muses in their fluted evening wear, their faces blank, might lead one to suppose something about the silence of the square, something about the building standing there. But no, they have no purpose but to pose. Boredom sets in first, and then despair. What happens after that? One doesn't care. What brought one here? The desire to compose something about the silence of the square or something else of which one's not aware. Life itself, perhaps. Who really knows? Boredom sets in first and then despair. Something about the silence of the square. Thank you. Do we have the, uh, do we have the right to ask an encore, or is that uh, sure? Can you can you read eating poetry? I'll read eating poetry first. I'll eat the book. <laughs> and I'll eat the poem. 
This is uh, one of the poems that inspired me to, to write poetry, and that leads into my uh, first oh. question to Mark, so I, I feel like... You know, um, I wrote a few years ago, or ten years ago, a bunch of poems called Five Dogs, which aren't included in this selected poems, because my editor did the selecting. I didn't. But it's the update of eating poetry. Oh. So, uh, but they're not here, so. (laughs) I'm rambling. Eating poetry. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. The librarian does not believe what she sees. Her eyes are sad, and she walks with her hands in her dress. The poems are gone. The light is dim. The dogs are on the basement stairs and coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. The poor librarian begins to stamp her feet and weep. She does not understand. When I get on my knees and lick her hand, she screams. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. That was more satisfying than you could know. Uh, that, that's one of those iconic handful of poems in my brain that sort of hear you read is a special thrill. Um, well, there's so many things that come to mind that I want to talk to you about. And one of the things that we all saw in this reading and heard in this reading was how deftly your poems negotiate between comedy and melancholy and wistfulness. And um, I know that you've actually said in interviews that you want to be funny and serious at the same time. But in, in the world of literary criticism, of course, comedy is kind of a a discounted notion. So I'm curious, do you feel, because I think there's a, a, a deep comic vein running through your work, do you feel that that has been appreciated by the critics? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I don't read the critics. Good. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, if a friend writes uh, a piece, I'll read it because it's sent to me, but I don't, my publisher doesn't send me reviews, so I don't know, and... Uh, the couple of books that have been written about my work I haven't read. It makes me very uneasy to read about myself. Yeah. So I can't say whether my comic streak has been appreciated, but I do think uh, it's a very essential part of my poetry, and if it wasn't taken into consideration, I think... Uh, it would be rather lopsided. Right. Um, I I was first enchanted by the uncanny, the uncanny, um, the those mysterious odd events for which we have no rational explanation, and I would try to incorporate something like a situa- a situation in which something of an uncanny nature would happen. And that, I think, led me to uh, the absurd. Right. And I was liberated 
when I wrote a book of stories called Mr. and Mrs. Baby, in which I deliberately tried to be uh, funny, uh, when I look back over those stories now, they don't seem quite so funny. Isn't there a husband who returns home one day, a collie or something yeah, like that? Yeah, no, the, no the, uh, a couple is lying in bed and uh, he suddenly says to his wife, I have something to tell you. She suddenly is startled and is terrified. Uh, she thinks he's probably going to have had an, having an affair or something. He says, what is it? Uh, and he says, well... I used to be a dog. <laughs> I, I think I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tells her and he, how great it was, it was being a dog. And she says, are you saying that something's wrong with our marriage? Goes <laughs> 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 on from there. Uh, and then after, after I wrote those stories, the humor uh, became... Uh, um, more frequent, and um, but also the melancholy seemed to increase. Mm-hmm. The lines got longer, the poems seemed fuller. They seemed more um, engorged with yeah. uh, sentiment or more embodied. Yeah, and so uh, I. I I try to combine melancholy and humor still. I mean, it's it's very difficult to move very quickly from one to the other and huh. without um, making the transitions obvious. Obvious. Right. Right. Um, before we return to the present tense, I wanted to cast uh, ourselves back a little bit in time. Um, in all of the interviews and the articles and so forth that I've read, it always says wanted to be a painter, went to Yale to study painting, while there, changed his mind, and went into poetry. Um, mm-hmm. Do you actually have a conversion experience? Did you look out the window one day and say, well, <clears throat> what happened? Uh, I've told various stories. about. I, I'm really not sure what happened, except that I'd been a reader of poetry, and especially Wallace Stevens, who's quite a visual poet, sort of visual philosophic poet. And I uh, I started, I just started fooling around writing and I... Did you show it to anybody or was it just for your own? No, I, just for my own. Well, it, the first few months, I didn't show it to anyone, and uh, the poems, and I showed them to my friend William Bailey, who's a painter. Right. But uh, the reason I changed was there were two, two, two primary reasons. One is there were so many more gifted painters around me <laughs> that I thought, this isn't for me. This is for them. I better find something else. But you weren't intimidated by the the poets who were around you? No. 
<laughs> what does yeah. that say about American poetry? <laughs> well, uh, I also got praise uh, from uh, my English professors for papers, and it turned my head. Huh. And uh, so I started reading a lot of poetry and started writing. I had a girlfriend at the time. We broke up. Well, I don't want to go into the story of my <laughs> my young love life, but anyhow, I ended up in Montreal uh, with a friend of hers. <laughs> uh, visiting my aunt in Montreal, and I looked up this friend of my ex-girlfriend, because I heard a lot about this, you know. <laughs> And she had just broken up with her boyfriend, but she was interested in hearing him recite and play the guitar. It was Leonard Cohn that was her oh, boyfriend. So she and I went to hear Leonard Cohn, and he was doing this, you know, playing guitar and singing. I said, this is lousy. I can do better than <laughs> So I remember jotting a poem down on a napkin, a rough draft. I mean, it was so preposterous. <laughs> I mean, um, For this girl? No, just to show her that I could write a poem in, you know, a minute. Uh-huh. <laughs> equal. Leonard Cohn was a nothing. A nothing. <laughs> well, that poem doesn't exist anymore. But, but I put it in my pocket and I took it out when I got back to New Haven and worked on it. It never came to anything, but then it led to other poems. And I never saw that girl again. <laughs> but I've run into Leonard Cohn several times. Have you told him the story? Yeah. Does he, he must get a kick out and of it. And he says, she's still up there. Wow. The girl, you know, uh, she sees her. Old habits die hard. Who was your, uh, your first mentor, the first real mentor, the first real poetical uh, teacher that you worked with who was influential? Donald Justice. Ah. I went to the University of Iowa to the writer's workshop and um, I had met because I was the young poet uh, there at at Yale um, when Robert Frost came they put me as the student to look after him for three days so, I mean, I would go to the dinners with him. He was a famously cantankerous character. Yeah. But, I mean, he didn't, we didn't talk much. I mean, I was in awe. And, you know, he was, you know, talking to old friends, professors. But I, I went to all the events. And one of the events was a dinner. And I met Robert Penn Warren there. And then... He and I became friends. I mean, he became a champion of mine early on, and that was very important to me. And so it was Donald Justice and uh, then Robert Penn Warren. Justice was known as sort of a poet's poet, wasn't he? He, wasn't, he didn't have a, a big sort of mainstream reputation, but I remember also when I worked with James Tate, Tate had enormous affection and respect for him. Yeah, no, he's a great teacher. And you can tell, I mean, Tate studied with him, Jory Graham studied with him, uh, Charles Wright. uh, I mean, very different poets. 
great cross-section of American poetry. And he was a terrific poet. And his reputation has grown. Lots of reputations um, diminish um, on the death of the poet. But his, I think, has increased steadily. You really did him justice to use his name in the, in the essay you wrote about him. Weather words is a beautiful, beautiful tribute to him. Oh, thank you. Analysis of his, of his work. That was well. a, one of those short New Yorker reviews. Uh, uh-huh. They asked me to. It was. I'll never short. review for them again. Why not? I I did. A, I have an agent. I should have done it today. I did a long review of that collected Neruda for them. And I think I got cheated. I mean, I've been <laughs> publishing there for 45 years or so. And I got this measly... You've got a bone pe- to pick with the New Yorker. Well, I have. I've talked to David Remnick. He asked me, why don't you review more for us? I'm never going to review for you again because <laughs> you cheated me. He said, what well, do you mean? I think you're the only person in this room who's told off David Remnick. We can, well, no, he's a nice guy. You... You grew up under the shadow of Auden. Everybody of your generation did. And uh, you told me that you'd met him once. Yeah, twice. Twice? Three times. <laughs> it's growing. But when he came to the University of Iowa, I was a young teacher there. I, taught, I came to the workshop one year but never got an MFA. I took the MA exam and got the MA so I could teach there. And then Auden came, and I had to take care of him, you know. See, I seem to be been a caretaker. Uh, <laughs> but um, he, uh, the last night, he invited me and my wife and um, uh, a publisher of Stonewall Press and later the Windover Press, Kim Merker, up to his hotel room this old, dingy Jefferson Hotel. Uh, but there were only... He had a bottle of gin, a bottle of gin that I bought, bought for him. He, when he sent me out to get the gin, he said, get me the cheapest gin. <laughs> so I, I bought him this cheap gin. And we were up there in this dingy hotel room. There were two twin beds and a night table side between the beds and there were two chairs and uh, he, he only had three glasses and uh, he poured some gin into my wife's glass into Kim's glass and into a glass that we were going to share <laughs> so I took a sip of the gin put the glass down on the table. Auden turned it around (laughs) to where my lips had been and took a sip. (laughs) Great. I turned it back to a clear plate, (laughs) took a sip, and he... Followed your... Followed my (laughs) lips. (laughs) What a case. case. That was the first time. And then um, the last time, uh, I was told 10 minutes before 
a big reading at Columbia University. I was still quite a young poet. I was still in my, well, I was in my early 30s. The uh, introducer said, I can't do it. I simply can't do it. My introduction isn't good enough. You do it. (laughs) I said, but I have no introduction. He said, but you have to do it. He was my boss. I was teaching then in the School of the Arts at Columbia. I said, okay, I'll do it. And there were 1,500 people in the audience. So I introduced him. I didn't say much. It was, it, it was a, I didn't know what to do. I, I think I said something like, if I were asked to introduce W.H. Auden, <laughs> I would say something like this. <laughs> and, so, and you got through it. I got through it. I never saw Auden again. You were, a, I don't know how uh, many people know, but Mark has won literally every prize that American literature has to give. Uh, he was also poet laureate, and I found an interesting little quote uh, from a uh, New York Times article in 1996 that goes like this. This is a reporter for the Times writing. The laureate can make of the one-year job what he pleases and need not compose works for state occasions, as is the chore of the British poet on which the American is modeled. In fact, the previous laureates, Robert Penn Warren, Richard Wilbur, Howard Nemirov, and Mr. Strand, have done little more publicly than give an annual reading. Mr. Strand said recently that much of his time had been taking up reading others' poetry, most of it bad. (laughs) It's the New York Times. (laughs) Not very charitable. Was that an official reading? You were uh, in the in the guise of the poet laureate. You were charged with reading poetry, or well, I gave readings, and I would read poems by people who would send me poems. I see. Uh, uh, indulgent mothers who had gifted children and <laughs> that sort of thing. I see. Um, but I did compose one. Um, uh, official public poem for the uh, Government Services Administration. I think I'm the only poet laureate who did such a thing. Um, Not exactly a poetical subject. At no, I had to do it for the uh, federal courthouse in Newark, New Jersey. For the uh, entablature or something like that? Around the base of a monument. Uh-huh. It's not a good poem, but it took me only 10 minutes. <laughs> and nobody's ever heard it before at a reading I've given. And this is the way it goes. It's four lines. When justice does its public part to educate the human heart, the erring human heart in turn must do its private part and learn. That's nice. I could have been a British poet laureate. You you could have been a a motto maker or something. (laughs) Um, 
you and Brodsky, who actually took the poet laureateship after you, were basically best friends. Yeah. And, uh, you, you palled around Rome a lot. Uh, yeah. He was a kind of an anomalous figure in American literature because English wasn't his first language. And after uh, sort of uh, translating his own work into English, he then began writing in English. And it's funny because he spoke with a Russian accent and he wrote with a Russian accent. Uh, how... Uh, how did your relationship develop? Uh, you were really very, very tight for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I met him soon after he came to this country. He gave a reading at the New School, and this was in the early 70s. And there was a party for him afterwards, and I introduced I'd been in the habit of sending him, well, for two years I'd sent him Christmas cards. And I asked him, had he gotten them? You sent them in Russia? or To Russia. Uh He said he had. And and he said, and I like your poetry. And my heart began to go pit-a-pat. And um, he said, yes, that poem, the way it is. And then he quoted the whole thing, 72 lines. You're kidding. But, I mean, I was astonished. I, who have a terrible memory, but Joseph had an incredible memory. I mean, he had almost all of Robert Frost by heart. So we just hung around together and uh, you know, drink vodka together. Talk about poetry. It's it seemed quite natural. Did you spend a lot of time in Rome? That was my impression. We spent some time in Rome. He spent a lot more time there. I mean, Joseph was an international poet right. who was asked to go everywhere to give readings, and uh, and if he was in Rome when I happened to go, it was great. We were in Yugoslavia together uh, for a while. I mean, he was a busy guy. I mean, thousands would show up for his reading. Yeah, literally. A huge figure. Great reader, too. I wanted to uh, move from that to the personal. Uh, You were telling me that you started a memoir, and and you began doing research, and you used the Freedom of Information Act to unlock some somewhat astonishing things about your family that you didn't know. Yeah, I, my parents had been communists in the 30s. Did you know that as a child? Oh, yeah. But I was right. very quiet about it. Well, I didn't know they were communists. I didn't know what a communist was, but they were members of the American Labor Party, uh, which was very, very left. And it became clear when I was 11 or 12 that they were communists. But it turns out my father was never a communist, that my mother was. Anyway, I wrote to the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act to get the scoop on my parents. And there was a 130-page document. Most of it blacked out because... (laughs) The names of all the informers, probably all their friends, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> um, were on it. But 
there was a little bit of information that startled me. First of all, there's a lot of wrong information. Um, where they were at certain times, um, who was there with them. I happen to know because I was there too. But the startling bit of information was that my father had been arrested for grand theft in 1927 and sentenced to San Quentin for four years as a 19-year-old boy. And uh, so I wrote uh, to the circuit court at San Diego where the arrest took place. I got the record of the trial. I got the psychologist's report. My father was insane, they thought, or delusional. Delusions of grandeur, they said. And And then I wrote to... San Quentin, where the state prison records, or Sacramento, where the prison records, I can't remember where I wrote it, it's Sacramento, where I wanted to get the, um, the actual prison record and to find out actually how long he, he, uh, he remained in prison. I don't think he served four years. My feeling was he served two. But I got a photograph of my father as a, 19-year-old. Uh, it was hard to recognize him. I barely could see. The, it was very eerie. Anyhow, it's part of a memoir that I'm embarked on. Because not only did nobody know that my father had spent some time in prison, but he spent his whole life disguising the fact, hiding it and inventing another past for himself. The one my mother knew, the one I grew up with, and the one all of his friends knew. A completely false existence. A completely fabricated life. And uh, Perfect foreground for a poet. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> uh, but later on, I began to suspect. I mean, these tales were too close to... But still you cling to them, you know, right. because this is the biography of your parent. Of course. And, you know, you know, parents aren't supposed to lie to their children. It's a terrifying thing, I mean, to, to go down that road about your own parents. God, God only knows what... When the, the phone is going to ring when I come home tonight and I'll, my mother will be on the other end saying, you know, who knows what. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, before we throw it open to some Q&A, I wanted to ask one last question. Um, I'm very struck by, I mean, as I said in my introduction, one of the things that I think is so uh, wonderful about the arc of your career is your ongoing development as a poet. And that is is not an easy thing, and it requires all sorts of uh, very, very special relationships to your own self, uh, and uh, and to others, a very disciplined relationship to your ego. Lot, lots of things go into that, to being able to do that. And apropos of that, I was struck by the way in which you have taken on, you've allowed yourself to be influenced by, for example, John Ashbery. That is not somebody who, uh, having read your earlier work, one would presume would... Uh, and in fact, you can feel, I can feel, I think, some of his 
sort of abstract liberty and the zaniness in your later work. Absolutely. I admire John Ashbery, and I have been influenced by him. I find him a liberating force. I don't find his poems are confined by their subject. Uh, Their subject seems to be the lack of confinement and the invitation to surprise. Uh, That doesn't mean they don't mean anything. They do. Uh, But I I always, uh, I find uh, in other people's poems occasions to liberate myself. You know, you begin, you write and you write, and the one thing you don't want to do is to write the same poem again and again and find yourself uh, stuck. So you, sometimes you have to take drastic measures and sort of reinvent the, the persona uh, your persona as a poet. Uh, I mean, you. Can, I mean, you can't really become another person, but you can uh, begin to mistrust what you've done sufficiently to embark on something that feels different or strange. And uh, the writing of a new book is the domestication of that venture into strangeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you begin to reel it in. Um, when you publish a new, when you finish a new yeah. book, you see it. You see, you the see it, yeah. yeah. Right now, I mean, after 12 books or so, I feel rather desperate. I, I, I want to do something that isn't me, but... I'd have to have to have sort of plastic surgery on my soul <laughs> sort of have that happen. <laughs> okay, are there any questions from the uh, from the audience? Anybody have any questions? Yeah. Thank you. Allowed? Um, no, they're dead unless they're read. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, I think, well, they're dormant. They're not dead. Um, I think um, when I write, I say the poem over and over to myself trying to establish a kind of cadence. Um, so that uh, a cadence that I don't think is entirely dependent on my performing the poem uh, aloud in front of an audience, 
I think it's, I hope it's a cadence that asserts itself uh, when someone is reading my poems alone in a room, that you begin to feel a kind of, um, well, the pull of the line, the sort of being swept up in the the rush of the poem. So the poem is uh, coming alive through that person. Yeah. I think you need, I mean, it's the only thing that distinguishes poetry from prose is really that poetry insists on cadence. Otherwise, it's, there are, some people sprinkle po- words around on a page and it's to distinguish it from prose. But, um, so that each word has a specific gravity gravity that it might not have in a prose paragraph. Um, but I prefer to write in lines. I don't say that you can't do the other. It's just not my mode. Do you have a first reader? Do you have somebody who you trust no. to be your first reader? No, I keep them pretty much to myself. I, uh, no, I don't show them to anyone. I used to exchange poems with Donald Justice and uh, for a little while with um, uh, Robert Penn Warren and with his daughter Rosanna Warren sometimes. This concludes today's podcast. To find out more about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please check